Did God have his hand over the founding of America? Was it a bastion of freedom or a center for slavery? What were Sunday blue laws and how are they connected to the mark and the image of the beast? How can believers stand faithful to God in the events to come? Join us for answers to these questions and more as we trace America's role in Bible prophecy from its beginnings all the way down till just before Jesus comes again. When the United States came into being, it was an enigma to the world. After having broken free from the British Empire, how could George Washington not proclaim himself king and start a dynasty? Never before had the great powers seen a head of state serve a couple of terms and then retire. It was unheard of. And to imagine that the position was not passed to his grandson. It was simply beyond comprehension and was known as the Great Experiment. A nation ruled for the people, by the people? Certainly it was a system that could never last. And so Europe sat back with their popcorn to watch it all disintegrate in a few short years. But it didn't. And as, it, and as they watched, it grew into a power that came to dominate them all. And merely by its success, without firing a single shot, it toppled every monarchy in Europe. So where did the United States come from? And how did this nation come to be such a superpower? And where does it fit into Bible prophecy? The United States can only be understood as a reaction to medieval Europe. And when the Bible begins to unpack the story of America, it starts by giving background history of the forces in Europe that came together to form the United States. Simply put, the story of medieval Europe is the story of religion. Religion dominated every aspect of European politics and history. And in Western Europe, there was just one church that dominated the world in much the same way that the US dominates the world today. It is with the history of the Church of the Dark Ages that the Bible begins to unpack the story of the United States. Let's take a moment to look at what it says. In Revelation 13 and verse 1, we find this passage. I stood on the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his seat, and great authority. Clearly, we have described to us here a symbolic creature. I am absolutely confident that none of you have ever seen one of these, either in the wild or in the zoo. And so if we have a symbolic prophecy, we need to look at the various symbols contained within this prophecy to be able to understand it and find out what does the Bible say that these symbols symbolize. We don't have time to look at every aspect of this symbolic creature. And so we will leave the discussion of the composition of this beast along with its seven heads to the discussion that comes after this presentation. However, there are some key aspects we must consider and these are, first of all, the beast. Second, the water it comes from. Third, its ten horns. Fourth, the crowns. And finally, the source of its power. So let's begin with the beast. What does a beast symbolize in Bible prophecy? Well, at this particular point, we could sit here and scratch our heads and think really hard and say, well, you know, I think it symbolizes this. 
In that case, we would come up with an opinion. However, if we go over to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 17, we find a concept that we are very familiar with today and that a beast is simply an animal in Bible prophecy is simply a symbol of a nation. You know, we think of Australia, it is symbolized by the kangaroo and the emu. We go to New Zealand and our friends over there, they're symbolized by a kiwi bird. The United States, of course, is symbolized by an eagle. And so we could go around the world. And of course, these are modern symbols for these nations. If we go to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 17, speaking about four great animals in this prophecy back here, the Bible says these great beasts, which are four, are four kingdoms which will arise out of the earth. And so we find that in Bible prophecy, much like today, nations are symbolized by animals. An animal or a beast in Bible prophecy is a symbol of a nation. This one is going to be the dominant nation during the Dark Ages. Now, the second thing that we notice about this beast is that it rises out of the water. Once again, we ask the question, what does the water symbolize? And we're going to look for a Bible definition because when you know what the Bible says, you know that you are not speculating. You're not simply making things up. You are allowing the Bible to interpret itself. So let's find a Bible definition for what water is when it is used in symbolic prophecy and symbolic language. Revelation chapter 17, this time we will go to, and right here in verse 15, the Bible said, uh, he said to me, the waters which you saw where the horse sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And so very simply, what you have depicted in Revelation 13 is a nation that is rising to power and it's coming up amongst a heavily populated area of the earth where there are multitudes and people and nations and tongues. Well, a little bit further on, uh, well, going back to this prophecy, we find that this beast has 10 horns when it comes to power. And when you go to the beginning of medieval Europe, you'll find that Western Europe was dominated initially by 10 separate nations. They were the Anglo-Saxons, the Burgundians, the Alamanni, the Franks, the Visigoths, Ostrogoths, Vandals, Heruli, Lombards and Suevi. Seven of those nations are the foundational nations of Western Europe. And in this scene, we can see that the crowns rather than being on the beast itself, not on the head of the beast, are on the horns themselves, indicating that the Roman Empire has collapsed and sovereignty has moved from the beast to the independent nations. Once again, Daniel 7 shed some light on this. Let's go back there very quickly and note what it says in verse 24 where the Bible says the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kingdoms that shall arise. And initially, medieval Europe started off with ten separate nations. But we're going to dig a little bit further into that. If we go back to uh, Revelation chapter 12, we find that there was a beast that preceded this one that came from the sea that looks like a leopard. Revelation chapter 12 is where we will go to next. And I want you to notice with me the language that is used in verse 4 and 5. The Bible says, she brought forth, sorry, verse 4, his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, threw them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. So here we have the symbol of a dragon. The one in chapter 13 looks like a leopard. This one looks like a dragon. 
But this one also, the Bible describes in verse 3, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. You notice here a couple of key differences. Here, it's still got seven heads and ten horns. The, the, the nations, the foundational nations of Western Europe are still there. But the sovereignty this time, the crowns are on the beast. This is the empire. And you'll say, no, 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 that's Satan. Yes, we know that. We understand that. But it is Satan who works through earthly powers. And so this is Satan working through an earthly power, the Roman Empire. And we know that for sure. Uh, when we notice verse 4, where the Bible says he stood before the woman to devour her child as soon as it was born, she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's Jesus Christ. You simply ask the question, who was it that tried to destroy Jesus at the time of his birth? And that was the Roman Empire. So here we have in chapter 13, the rise of a nation coming from a heavily populated region of the world based on 10 independent nations, the crowns on the horns with the source of its power being the Roman Empire. This nation goes on to become a world superpower during the Dark Ages. The Bible stating that power was given unto him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Now, there was only one dominant power stretching over the independent nations of Europe during the Middle Ages, and that was the Church of Rome. We all know that, but I want you to notice is just how specific the prophecy becomes about the Vatican State during that time. First, you will notice the emphasis on worship. In verse 4, the Bible states, they worship the beast. And then in verse 8, the Bible says, all the world worships the beast during this era. This is not just an ordinary nation. This is a nation that is also a religion. But we must ask, how and when did the Vatican receive such universal power? And once again, in incredible clarity, the Bible has the answer with three specific requirements that were exactly fulfilled. Notice Revelation 13 and verse 2. The end of verse 2, the Bible says the dragon, we mentioned the dragon, imperial Rome, gave to him his power his seat and great authority. So we ask the question, did that actually happen? Well, let's think about the Church of the Middle Ages. We have a name for it today. We call it the Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because it has the seat, the capital city of the Roman Empire. But what about these other aspects here? There are three of them. His power, his seat and his authority. And to understand that, we need to go back in history to a time period when the seat of the Roman Empire was moved from, Constantine, from, from Rome to Constantinople and the emperors of Rome, the political emperors of Rome in the year 538. And we're going to talk more about this in our next presentation. But the emperors of Rome, by the decree of Justinian, gave to, very specifically, gave to the church their power, their seat and their authority, just as the Bible said. And so we find the Vatican received the power, seat and authority of the Roman Empire, just as the Bible stated it would. In fact, uh, Stanley and his Christian institution stated, the Pope fills the place, 
filled the place of the vacant emperors at Rome, inheriting their power, prestige and titles from paganism. Now, what does the Bible say would happen to this small nation with all this power? Well, unfortunately, power corrupts. And if you're familiar with the history of the Dark Ages, you will know that the power was severely abused. The Vatican created a judicial system called the Inquisition. Through the Inquisition and the religious wars that followed, up to 150 million people lost their lives for their faith. There's a reason why John Paul II made an apology for the actions of the church during this period in the year 2000. In fact, the Roman Catholic Cardinal Alfred Bodrillart described it this way. The Catholic Church loudly proclaims that she has a horror of blood. Nevertheless, when confronted by heresy, she has recourse to force, to corporal punishment, to torture. She creates tribunals like those of the Inquisition, encourages a crusade or a religious war. Especially did she act thus in the 16th century with regard to Protestants. She led in Italy, the Low Countries, and above all in Spain, the funeral pyres of the Inquisition. In France and in England, she tortured the heretics, whilst both in France and Germany, she encouraged and aided the religious wars. No one will deny that we have here a great scandal to our contemporaries. Indeed, even among our friends and our brothers, we find those who dare not look this problem in the face. They ask permission from the church to ignore or even deny all those acts and institutions of the past which have made orthodoxy compulsory. Let's go back to what else the Bible has to say here in Revelation chapter 13. Once again, Every detail fulfilled the Dark Ages, the medieval era, so specifically described to us. The Bible says it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So how did all this come to an end? And what does it have to do with the rise of the United States? Well, in Revelation 13, 3, the Bible says the Vatican would receive a fatal wound. And in verse 5, it says the wound would come at the end of a 42-month period. So what's that all about? Once again, we must understand that this is a symbolic prophecy. And when we're dealing with symbols, we need to look for those symbols and to define them when we find them. So what does a day how long is a month and what does a day symbolize in Bible prophecy? Well, the biblical month is exactly 30 days long. And people who followed and some who still do follow the biblical calendar every few years add in an extra month to reset their calendar with the cycle of the earth around the sun. Now, when we look at the biblical calendar, of 30 days to a month. And then we go to Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 6. And by the way, this is just one verse. I'm giving you one verse for you know, each of these symbols. There are many verses. This is a principle you find right through the Bible. But I'll give you one verse for it. Ezekiel 4 verse 6. This was an acted out prophecy that Ezekiel was acting out. And God said, when you have accomplished them, lie again on your right side. You will bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have appointed you each day for a year. So here's what's interesting. Did you notice that the 42-month prophecy ended in 1798? Now think about it. When did the United States become a nation? 
Well, if you want the answer to that question, along with all of its implications, you'll need to join us for part two of this presentation, coming at the same time tomorrow. The story of the Dark Ages would not be complete, however, without mentioning the great Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. Sadly, the Protestants copied the model handed to them from the Vatican and formed what is known as magisterial Protestantism or state-sponsored churches. This union of church and state created the same problem that existed in, in the Roman church and persecution broke out against anyone who did not believe the same as the state-run Protestant churches. When America was formed, it was the result of Christians fleeing from state-sponsored church persecution. And that state-sponsored church persecution was Protestant persecution. Finally, we should mention the French Revolution, which was almost contemporary with the American Revolution. The French Revolution was different from the American Revolution in that it placed equality first while the Americans placed liberty first. I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about the environment that we find ourselves in the world right now and ask ourselves this very simple question. What is it that is happening in our world? Do we have equality as being the primary issue or liberty as being the primary issue? You see, when Americans placed liberty first and equality second, they went on to become world superpower. It wasn't quite the same with France, though, was it? They descended into a bloody revolution where they kind of butchered themselves and 40,000 people died. And so these were some of the primary factors that influenced the formation of the United States. A nation with no king or emperor, a nation with separation of church and state, and a nation with religious liberty and freedom of conscience enshrined within its constitution. A nation that endeavoured to learn from and correct all the abuses of the Middle Ages. Sadly, America has not stayed the land of the free. Over the last few months and years, we've seen liberties and freedoms that were once the standard for the rest of the world eroded away. And as we move through this series, you'll see just how this is taking place. Now, of course, the best part of this prophecy is what the Bible says about those who overcome all earthly powers and find their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And we need to spend some time talking about this particular group. So let's go back to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Of course, as we look at this passage, we need to remember, this is the Bible giving you the background for the rise of the United States. One thing that I love about Scripture is that when God gives us history, he's like any good historian. He loves to go back and say, okay, this is all of the background. This is all of the events that were taking place. We're going to talk about the rise of the United States. But before we go there, let's look at the forces that came together to form this nation. Why is this nation the way that it is? And that's why we have this prophecy of this first beast right here in Revelation chapter 13. In fact, the Bible says more about this first beast than what we've read so far. The Bible says that this first beast would descend into blasphemy. 
And if you go back to the Dark Ages, you're going to find some very strong statements that we would say would be very, very strongly against Scripture. Some of which are even continued today. In fact, if we go back over to, um, let's go back to the book of Mark for a moment. And let's consider what Jesus said back here. The Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the sick of the palsy, son, your sins are forgiven you. Catch the next little conversation that happens here because here you have a first century definition of what blasphemy is. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there reasoning in their hearts saying, why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive, God, who can forgive sins but God alone? If you're looking for, you know, blasphemy today can refer to many, many different things. But if you are looking for a biblical definition for blasphemy from the first century in which the book of Revelation Revelation was written, it was simply claiming the power to forgive sins. Did the church of the Dark Ages descend into that? Well, indeed it did. And that's called auricular confession. If we go over to the Gospel of John, we find something else. We go over to John chapter 10. And we find this uh, concept comes up again. Jesus states in John chapter 10 and verse 29, My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones to throw at him. Jesus said to them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And if you go back through history, and if you read some of the pronouncements made during the Dark Ages by the Church of Rome, you will find that this was a church that was definitely setting itself up as God. And as it set itself up as God, we see that corruption coming in that caused it to persecute bitterly anybody who disagreed with it. This is a danger that we should all be aware of. We understand the saying so well today that, you know, ultimate power is ultimate, ends with ultimate corruption. Revelation chapter 13. Let's go back here and let's spend some time now. I want to unpack the very best part of this prophecy. Revelation chapter 13 and let's go down to verse 8. In concluding this section where God takes us through, okay, this is, the, this is the historical background to the rise of the United States. Comes to the end of this section and he doesn't want to leave it as being just all bad. You know, we could look at it and just, God's just, just you know, completely down on everything and everybody during this period. No, that's not the case either. God is not in the business of just discouraging us. A lot of very, very faithful people during this time period. The Bible says all that live on the earth shall worship him. This is the first beast. This is the church of the, of the dark ages. Whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It would be easy as historians to look back at this period and to see so much corruption within Christianity and say they were, they were just all lost. You know, these, these people, didn't have, they had no relationship with God whatsoever at all. And yet the Bible says that right through that time period, there were those who had their names written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 12 mentions it. 
in Revelation 12 and verse 5 and 6, the woman brought, the woman brought forth a man-child, that's Jesus, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman, and you'll remember that a woman in Bible prophecy symbolizes a church. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place preserved of God, that they should feed her there for 1,260 days. 42 months, of course, 1,260 days. That's the same time period. Time period began in 538, ended in 1798. That's going to be unpacked in our next presentation. But what we have very simply here is the Bible describing this, that God's faithful people would be preserved right through this time period, that it wouldn't all just be bad news. And so if you dig into your history and you want to look at the medieval period, and if you look at, one of the, look at the, the corruption of power that took place during that time period, and even the apologies that have been made for it in our day, we need to remember, is not all bad right through that period. There were faithful men and women who followed Jesus with their whole hearts, fully dedicated to him. And the Bible says that their names were written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, there are many different names for Jesus. So why call it the Lamb's book of life? What's that all about? It could have called it Jesus' book of life, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Emmanuel's book of life, but the Lamb. I want you to catch that. Because whenever the Bible uses one of the many different names or titles for Jesus, the Bible does it with a specific purpose in mind. And when the Bible references the Lamb, where does that take our mind? Well, that takes our mind straight to the sacrifice. The Lamb was an animal of sacrifice. Jesus was the Lamb. How do we get our names then in the book of life? Could there be anything more important for you and I to know the answer to Revelation chapter 13 uh, follows on into Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 4, the Bible describes those which follow the Lamb wherever He goes, redeemed from among men, first fruits on the earth. Well, what could that mean? Following the Lamb wherever He goes. I want you to think about that. When Jesus was the lamb, where was he going? Well, the answer is very simple. When Jesus was the lamb, he was going to Calvary to be sacrificed. And when the Bible speaks about those who follow the lamb wherever he goes, it's speaking about those who will follow Jesus wherever he goes. Whatever he asks, they just love him so much. They can't hold back. In Romans, Romans chapter 12, the Bible says, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Notice the language, sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. When you understand just how good God is, it's the least we can do to give our lives entirely to Him. For video of this series, visit our website at theend.digital or find us on social media.